Welcome to our special series on Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer, and the movement has recently seen worldwide protests in response to the death of George Floyd. In this series, we meet Caribbean medical students from various schools and discuss their involvement with the movement and tips for how to address racial inequalities as a medical student. Hello from the sunny beaches of St. Kitts and Nevis. Welcome to Dextrocardia, your one-stop shop podcast for everything related to life as a Caribbean medical student. I'm your host, Nihal Satyadev, a second-year medical student at the University of Medicine and Health Sciences. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed by guests of this podcast do not reflect the opinions or views of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's dive in. So welcome to another episode of our BLM series. Today we have a second year medical student from SABA, Ali Funderburg, joining us. Ali, thanks so much for hopping onto the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Ali. I'm from Houston, Texas. Uh, As Nahal said, I'm a second year medical student. Um, The journey obviously was not easy getting here. Um, but I think that's what makes our stories a little sweeter. Um, I grew up in Houston. I went to LSU undergrad. Um, I got my master's at Southern. So I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana for a little while, for about six or seven years. Um, and then I took my talents to Saba University School of Medicine. Um, it's been a journey. It's very cool uh, being on the island. Uh, it's very quiet, so it, it gives you the opportunity to really hone in and focus and perfect your study skills. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I'm a traveler. I just love to travel uh, anywhere I can travel, anytime that I get, because our breaks are very limited. Um, <laughs> so anytime I have a break, I come back home for a little bit and then I I go out to a different city or I hike or bike Um, and then exercise, exercise, working out is like a top priority for me. I think that's what kind of keeps you on top of your game with studying and kind of keeps momentum going for those 16 to 18 hour weekend days. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm just a pretty laid back person. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's great to get to know you a little bit better. Um, and obviously I've been hearing um, a lot about your work um, with BLM. So really interested to kind of get to know how you first got involved with the Black Lives Matter movement and what was uh, the inflection point at which you realized that it was time to uh, to really stand up and join the movement and uh, make your voice heard. Yeah, so um, I've been involved, um, not directly with Black Lives Matter, uh, but with different organizations from high school to current. Um, And then I kind of segued into Black Lives Matter. Um, But I've been a part of like Black Student Union and NAACP organizations throughout um, my lifetime, I guess you can say. So from high school to about now currently. Um, But what kind of I guess sparked it in me to be more vocal and more involved with Black Lives Matter is not just the recent events, but just the, the, I guess, growing and how rapid these events have been, you know, happening. And so 
um, being a black student, there aren't many, there's never been, I guess, in my experience of life, there hasn't been many um, people that look like me in my class, um, in healthcare, in major corporations. And so the drive for me has been to just have representation um, for those that are, that will grow up after me and those that are currently um, in the same position as me, just as an encouragement. Um, but I guess the, the main pinpoint um, is the, the disproportionate of uh, resources, of um, availability to those that are of color and how it's a little bit harder, although some may disagree, um, it is a little bit harder to achieve certain goals um, and standards that uh, people set for themselves, primarily Black people that we set for ourselves. And, and to accomplish those, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has just kind of helped me to hone in on being that voice for someone that needs a resource or needs, you know, help on how to study or how to get into med school or how to write a paper, something very simple um, as as those things listed, or even going a step further, um, tutoring, you know, in the community for young children that are not just STEM children, but children that just don't have anyone to help them. And they're in these uh, lower economic um, statuses. And so they, they don't have these resources. So those all have encompassed um, and sparked this fire in me to kind of be forward and be on the front line of this movement. So you have a little bit of a interesting perspective because you've been involved uh, in these uh, in these efforts for such a long period of time. So over the course of your involvement, what would you say are some of the things that you've learned that you've seen that has kind of shifted in the space between high school and now? So one of the things that I've uh, learned along the way is uh, Everything doesn't require a response, although um, in my mind, I feel like they do, because <laughs> I feel like if you don't say anything, um, then it won't happen or there won't be a change. And so one of the things uh, or an example I can give you is I was working on a project at LSU uh, with Black Student Union, where we do a number of different things like uh, volunteer, we do different pageants, just kind of help raise money and give back to the community. Um, and I was kind of getting some pushback from, from the administration, not so much the university in itself, but someone within the administration on trying to get, you know, some things signed off so that we can have this particular event on campus surrounded around the Black community and bringing in, you know, people within, around the community, within Baton Rouge, also um, with students on campus. And so, um, I was secretary at the time and with that there's a lot that goes into it more so than just taking minutes and so trying to you know get this um, approved by the university or by the administration um, I just I wanted to respond in such a way of just like transparency and uncut without having going through formalities of emails and just kind of read them their rights like this is not right and you know it's not um, but in that moment, I learned um, just from the interaction with some of the administration that my response may have not been needed at the time because there sometimes there are things that are going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to um, and that we may never be privy to. But then it works itself out. And so I was able to get my approval for the event. Um, 
and an apology email was issued and all those types of things. So one of one of those things I did learn is not everything requires um, a response. And um, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Yeah, just uh, how you've seen the space and the efforts kind of shift between your focuses in high school versus now or over time. Yeah, so so the shift um, just kind of in line with the not everything requires a response. The shift is when you do respond and the way in which you respond, um, those that are in position that are not of color hear us in a way. Um, and I'll speak to a most recent event with my university. Um, they have not issued a letter. They have not issued any type of recognition in regards to the current event. And so that also has sparked me to be more vocal uh, for myself and for the other students of color to say, hey, why hasn't this happened? So in this moment, I'm like, okay, I can't be silent anymore. Yes, I'm a medical student, but I'm a black medical student and you're gonna have black patients, you're gonna have black students that come into your university. And to me, there has to be inclusion. Um, so to give you an example of that shift, um, had a, a meeting, a Zoom meeting with uh, Vice Chancellor, I believe, um, a couple of times, and there hasn't been much progress, but I think our voices are being heard because there, there's been a little bit of change as far as um, implementing uh, certain ideas that I've had as far as uh, helping with the mental health of students, um, because, I mean, this is kind of traumatizing to some and so just kind of helping with providing those resources for mental health, as well as, um, no, you know, recognizing that there's diversity there, but there's no inclusion. And so we've come to an agreement that the inclusion piece needs to be worked on now. And so we're coming up with different ideas and, and ways that our administrators and presidents of the university can kind of help us to push this along and create this change with, within SABA. So I think the point that you bring up is really one of organizational maturity in that you can't really react every time something happens. You have to really mm -hmm. select and choose when you react, but when you do mm -hmm. react, you need to be completely thorough in that reaction, so to speak, and really see through um, the efforts. So very uh, interesting Absolutely. and piece because I think a lot of people, especially now many people are coming into the fold around the movement at this moment, uh, which is great, uh, but they may have a sense that everything needs to be done right now. We need to respond to every single time mm -hmm. a story comes out. And in my experience, and it sounds like in your experience, that's not the most tactful way to move forward organizing movements. So very, very interesting that you have that perspective as well. Now you yeah. alluded a little bit to some of the work that you're doing right now with SABA. So could you speak a little bit more broadly as to what you're doing in medical school around some of the Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, so I'm actually the president of an organization on campus called the African Diaspora Association. Um, and so with ADA, what we do each semester is we host an initial meeting just to kind of welcome new members and recognize old members. And so uh, with the turn of events, um, especially around George Floyd's death, it has prompted me to um, kind of be more vocal in this, in this current moment. And so one of the things that I did, uh, as I previously spoke on, was I met with the vice president. I said vice chancellor, but uh, I met with our vice president of the university via Zoom. Um, and so 
I had a friend of mine, she compiled an Excel spreadsheet that just kind of lists a number of petitions. I mean, over a hundred uh, petitions that people can kind of look through and pick and choose, you know, which one that they fit, feel uh, fits them um, and that they feel that they can contribute to either monetarily or just by signing the petition for change, um, whether that's um, helping with the cases of those that have lost their lives or helping with those that have protested and have now been thrown into jail or helping with uh, just the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole. Um, and so I've uh, distributed those resources to uh, our entire campus as well as the administrative team um, in hopes that, you know, someone will just look at it. And, and we've had a few, I've had quite a few people, I've received emails because once you've signed up for a particular link called change.org, once I've signed up for that link, anyone that's linked to me or that I've given the link to, um, will, I'll, I'll be notified that, hey, they've signed the petition. And to me, that's, that's protesting behind the screen is what I call it because I mean we're still in school we still have an, an obligation and a priority um, so that's one thing another thing um, was I've compiled a couple of mental health uh, resources such as calm and relaxed meditation to kind of help the students um, some that may be battling just with stress or anxiety on top of medical school on top of you know the pandemic on top of um, Black Lives being slain. And so um, just kind of provided some of those resources to the administration for the administration to administer and distribute via a wide email, which has not been done yet. Um, so I've already distributed out myself, but you know, it kind of has or takes a different tone when it comes from administration. It kind of lets us know, hey, we, we have your backs or hey, we hear you. And just to to not have that support is, is a little disheartening, but it's eye-opening at the same time. And so uh, my most recent endeavor is I've teamed up with SGA um, and we're going to uh, come up with an idea of going beyond the petitions and, and seeing how we can help within our communities here in the States, as well as on the island, because we still, we're partial residents to the island and um, there is a large uh, population uh, they're, well, pretty large, I guess you can say, it's not that large, uh, but a pretty large population there um, to just kind of let them know that we support them and hopefully, you know, in return, they, they will support us. So those are a few things that I've been working on. Yeah, that's really impressive. And one of the things that's uh, pretty, uh, very impressive to me uh, in this series of podcasts is the fact that all of the things that you are discussing is on top of the fact that you're a full-time medical student, which is, yeah. you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, no joke, 12 to 14. The calendar. The calendar keeps me in line. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, uh, that's very impressive. I love the multidimensional approach to how you're looking at this, uh, not only from a push towards administration, but also towards a resource guide. And I think change.org is set up in a very nice way where it does keep you in the loop of how petitions that you're involved with are developing. Uh, yeah. That we're sponsored by change.org, but change.org is talking, is listening to this. Feel free to sponsor us. Um, but, yes, please. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I second that. <laughs> but I want to just circle back really quickly because you brought up a really important point a few minutes ago in the, differences between diversity and inclusion 
And so can you speak a little bit more to what the two words mean to you and kind of distinguish between those two for our listeners? Definitely. So diversity, um, in, in my words, I'm not going to go Webster here, but in my words, diversity is where we have a conglomerate of cultures that are within one community. I'll call it a community um, because we call med school a community on, on Sabah's campus. And so we have a number of different cultures from Black, White, Indian, German, just a number of different people that are um, given the opportunity to something that they may not have been given the opportunity for in previous years. Um, and so um, with SABA, it's very, very diverse. They, uh, not that there's discrimination there, but discrimination is real. Um, however, I don't see where they lack the diversity in their community. Now with inclusion, um, inclusion to me would be, okay, we have this group of students um, and now I'm going to parse them out. So we have a group of black students, we have a group of Indian students, we have a group of Native American students, and then we have a, a group of, and I, I call them, and this is not a label by any means, but I would call them European students because um, white is just too broad there's mixtures there. And so we have a group of European students. Now with the inclusion piece, um, I'll just use our, our current example of the new events with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so in lieu of George Floyd's death, um, the Black students were waiting in a sense, not so much waiting, but I will say waiting in a sense of um, for our school to say something, for our school to say, hey, I'm so sorry this is happening. I see that this is happening. Um, this could have been any one of us, any one of, the, one of our Black students in the United States. George Floyd was from Houston, Texas, which is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. There's a connection there, um, not so much personally, but I'm sure someone in my family knows someone that he knows or may know him directly. Um, and so for me, in my mind, we were not included in any type of way from Saba's perspective. And this is not to bash Saba by any means. I love my university. Um, but I feel like there was a little bit of a ball drop here um, when it comes to your diverse community is not being included in your mission statement because they speak about diversity within their mission statement. Um, and one of the our vice president, one of our administrators did agree with me that there is a, a little bit of disconnect with communication and inclusion on their part. Um, and I think we're working together to try to help um, make sure that inclusion is there, not just for black students, but for everyone, because I mean, it's happening across the globe and we can't ignore it. And we can't just say, oh, hey, we're diverse. We have black students, we have Indian students, we have white students. But if you're not contributing to every student's need and every student's um, desire for medicine, um, I, I think it's, it's pointless to even talk about diversity in your mission statement. Um, and again, this is generally speaking, not just speaking about SABA, but generally speaking, if you're going to talk about diversity and you're going to have diversity within your community, we have to pair that with inclusion. And that's making sure the voices of every individual is heard.
Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of good points. I think one corollary I've seen on social media lately is, you know, diversity is like being invited to the party, but inclusion is being a member of the party planning committee. And so I totally agree that diversity is, it's a good step, but inclusion is uh, more so the long-term goal. And uh, the distinction between the two could not be more important. So I really appreciate you breaking that down for us. So let's talk a little bit more about what's going on in um, healthcare overall, right? Uh, I think a lot of the things specific to uh, BLM and medical students alludes to the fact that we are going to be physicians one day. And as physicians and being a integral part of the healthcare system, it's really important for us to uh, be thinking about the racial disparities. So what are some of the racial disparities that you see are uh, very, uh, some of the bigger racial disparities that you see in healthcare and what are some of the uh, suggestions that you have for medical students right now to better prepare for when they come across these disparities? Yes, I love this question. I really do. And so many things pop into my mind. So I'm going to try to stay on track here. One thing I want to touch on with this question um, as far as health disparities is the skyrocket of Black women that are dying during uh, delivery um, on top of maybe their child dying with them, um, but more so the mother dying. And that is, (laughs) it's just shocking and disheartening at the same time and scary a little as a medical student um, as to why. The question is why, not just from the outside community, but also from a medical standpoint. There are so many steps that can be taken to prevent um, this this mother's death leading up to her delivery, right up to her delivery. There are so many um, things that can be done and monitored to make sure that the mother and baby are healthy. Um, But I think it starts with the physician um, taking a look and say, hey, am I paying attention to my patient close enough? Am I giving this patient the same amount of attention that I would give to a non-Black patient? Um, and I think the reality and the the um, the b- brutal honesty of it all is the answer is no. I don't think the uh, the attention is given right away, um, and not so much just putting it solely on the physician, but I also don't think some mothers um, are given the proper knowledge on their, their pregnancies and, and what, how to monitor and what to look for. Um, and so that, that is one. <laughs> Another is, um, gosh, I have so many and they're just running through my mind all at once. I want to organize it. Well, I'm, actually really, um, uh, I'm actually really uh, excited that you brought that up because of all the ones we've done of the series so far, you're the first person to bring that up. And across, so I did my master's in public health and and in the course of doing a master's in public health, you're uh, privy to so many statistics about Mm -hmm. health. But this was by and far one of the ones that really stood out to me, which was the fact that the black maternal mortality rate is four times higher than higher. Yeah, that is an outrageous number. Uh, So it is. And it's growing. It's climbing. And that is the second part, which is the fact that it's not like this is something declining, that we can pat ourselves on the back that, hey, we brought it down from 7x to 4x and we're continuing mm-hmm. to get it down. It is definitely getting worse. So it, it, 
not to say that I'm an expert in uh, in maternal mortality, but with the mm-hmm. proportion that high, it has to be a multifaceted uh, issue. It can't be something mm-hmm. that is due to a single thing. But the first step is recognizing that issues like this exist, right? So I'm really glad uh, that, yeah. that you brought that up. Uh, but yeah, but please do continue on bringing up some of the other ones that are uh, that are out there. Yeah, I just I want to expound on this a little. <laughs> it's just it, it's holding on to my attention for some reason. Um, one thing uh, that you said that I think is so true is it is very multifaceted. And I think um, it also kind of boils down to because when when I was in my undergrad going into my grad program, I worked in the hospital um, for five years or really all seven years. But the five years of the seven, I worked in administration. And so I got to see the administrative side of healthcare. And it was really interesting to me that we have these powerful administrators in position that are not physicians. So they're making these decisions and making these policies based on a business standpoint, um, just from my my opinion and my thought. Um, But what I wanted to make clear in saying that is we need more physicians that have these masters of public health or masters in my masters is in uh, biology and biomedical sciences, but that have this background knowledge of not just science and medicine, but also within the community. Public health is about global community, and it's about okay. We see these disparities. We see these percentages. We see all of this epidemiology across the board. How can we fix it? How can we decrease these numbers? How can we decrease mortality rates? And I don't think that's the conversation right now. I think the conversation is, how do we cover this up? And that may be a stretch, but that's just my perspective because I'm seeing so many articles, like daily almost now, of women dying and not just regular everyday Black women, some that are influencers, some that are in media that have this platform that's like, wait, if this is happening to them, this could happen to me, someone that's, you know, regular. And, and that's the thought that I feel like administrators and healthcare providers need to have in mind. How do we rectify this? Where, where do we begin? Let's start with a pinpoint issue, try to resolve that issue, and maybe these different um these different areas that lead up to this may lead up to this one broad issue. And so I don't think that, com- I don't know if that conversation is being had. It, it very well may be uh, behind the scenes and at different hospitals. There's so many across our country. Um, but I think with all of the available resources we have and the advancing of technology, there has to be a way to save these women. There not has to be a way, there is a way to save these women. I just don't know if the um, proper precautions are being taken. Another thing I wanted to touch on um, with the disparities in healthcare um, is looking at it from a uh, physician standpoint. We don't have that many Black physicians. Uh, the percentage is still very low. I believe it's at about five or six, um, and then two percent of it is Black men, and so it's very, very small. Even though it's looking as a Black student and following a number of uh, minority pages, it seems like there's a lot of of Black doctors, but there really is not 
there's there's not that many out there. And so one thing as medical students and residents and professionals is we have to reach back. We have to encourage those that have the desire to be physicians to come into the light and to follow that journey so that we can um, have representation there and have someone within the community so that our our, our population, our black population will go to the doctor and will check on themselves and will become better and will stay healthy. Um, but just speaking to, you know, friends and family um, and some strangers, they will not go to the doctor based off of history. Um, and when I say based off of history, I'm talking about the Tuskegee experiment. I'm talking about Henrietta Lacks with her, with the HeLa cells um, experiment. I just, there, there's been some, um, distrust place there. And when you don't have trust in your physician or in anyone, you're not going to go to them. You're not going to seek help. And so um, I think that's another disparity that we have. We have a very low percentage of, of Black doctors um, and, and we need to help, you know, just rectify that and not just say, oh, we need more Black doctors, but we also need more allies that say, whether you're Black or non-Black patient, you should want to see everyone. But the reality of it is there is some separation still there. A Black uh, patient may be treated a little differently than a non-Black patient. Um, and so I'll leave that there. The final thing, and I know I'm kind of rambling, but again, these, these thoughts are just firing. Um, but another thing that I wanted to bring up that I thought was really cool and that I think um, is a good discussion that should be had is recognizing um, certain diseases on Black skin. Um, and so one thing, I just had a conversation with someone a, a couple of days ago. Uh, there is this medical student, I believe he is in Africa. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I just read the article a few days ago, so it's kind of a blur. However, he has created a book. It has not been published yet, um, but it's over 200 uh, diseases that mirror what you should what you should look for on black skin. And so, a lot of these diseases may go undiagnosed um, or unnoticed because us as medical students, um, and speaking just not as a medical student, but as a black medical student, we don't see many um, darker skin patients when we're in our um, CSAs, which we, we call, it, call it CSA, which is clinical skills, where we're learning how to interact with patients and what to look for. And when we're in our pathology courses, um, which at SABA, we go based off of systems. So uh, currently, well, we're not in a particular system that deals with skin, but <laughs> when, you, when we get to skin, we're not shown, you know, what to look for on darker skin. We see this bullseye rash for Lyme disease on fair or lighter skin. Um, and comparatively, on black skin, it's not going to look the same. And so you can miss it. And um, unfortunately, your patient may go into a bad, may go into shock and, and may die. Prevented. We hope that that doesn't happen. Um, but when you don't know what to look for and you're not, um, taught what to look for, um, then it, it keeps the Black population at a disproportionate rate and at a higher rate of mortality. And so all of these different things, I think, that are now coming to the forefront with this book 
um, with the recognition of there's an issue in um, a pregnant black black pregnant women, um, as well as the uh, disproportionate rate of physicians. I think all of those or those main three um, are something that needs to be talked about and kind of researched. And so those are kind of the ones that I'll, I'll leave you with. There's so many, but I'll, I'll leave you with those. Absolutely. So just to kind of comment and add a little bit of flavor to a lot of what you were saying, right? There, the, the number is correct. About 5% of physicians are black, which, uh, which, you know, is shocking when you realize that 13% of the population, at least in the U.S., which most of us Caribbean students are looking to match back into, uh, are mm -hmm. black. And so that's around, you know, 40, only a 40% of a ratio between physicians to the general population, and that's astoundingly low. So mm -hmm. that sort of issue, if it were to, let's say we completely solve that this year and the next medical student cycle somehow had 13% of medical students who are black, that would still be, you know, seven to 10 yeah. years before people are fully practicing physicians. So then right. I, the other point which you brought up has even more importance in terms of people who are currently in the pipeline of learning and people who are licensed physicians right now should be taking more time to understand how they're implicitly biased, uh, which is not to say you're a bad person, but implicit biases right. exist, uh, how to better understand some of these issues that you're bringing up in terms of, uh, in terms of skin, uh, skin presentations is a really, really good example. And there's so many things that we're taught in terms of a differential to look at between a, you know, the differential between Rocky Mountain spotted fever and, and early mm -hmm. kiosis and measles is literally the rash. And if you yeah. can't see the rash, <laughs> you need to have a whole nother way of understanding the disease. Uh, exactly. And so, you know, that's really another really good thing that you bring up. And I would refer people to uh, the earlier conversation that we had on this podcast with Felix from AUC, where we went in a little bit more in depth into, uh, into allyship, uh, which mm -hmm. we, we don't have time to uh, go through in this episode. But what I do want to discuss with you as a final question is we've we've seen some things that are trending in a poor direction with maternal mortality. We've seen a lot of other things in terms of general awareness of issues on the rise. So overall, the movement is trending in a number of different directions. So what ultimately would you define success of the Black Lives Movement to you? whether that's overall or in healthcare specifically? Huh, good question. Um, I think overall, the Black Lives Matter movement is moving upward. It's moving in a very good direction. Um, and not to fully touch on allyship, but I think allyship is playing a larger role um, in helping to move the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement in that upward direction. Um, because now we have more resources where we had this limited amount of resources. Um, we now have an additional amount of resources that can help push this movement. And there are a number of people, you know, kind of coming to a head like, oh, we see the disparities in our company or, oh, we see we've, you know, done some things that should not have been done in the past. Um, and that's great. However, um, 
we can't negate that it's been there and, and it's knowingly been there. And I think what Black Lives Matter is doing now is kind of shining light on that. And I think that's a great thing. Um, not to, you know, put anyone on the spot or make anyone a bad person, as you said, um, it's more so uh, this has been an issue. It has never gone away. We've just put a blanket over it. And now Black Lives Matter has just pulled that blanket back and thrown it out the window and said, hey, look, we have larger issues at hand, not just with um, those that are losing their lives to um, law enforcement, but those that are losing their lives in health from healthcare. Um, and not to say that our healthcare providers and physicians aren't doing everything that they can because we are trained and have taken an oath to do everything that we can, but there are um, certain um, holes in, in the healthcare system that I think not just the Black Lives Matter movement, but those that are within organizations um, that primarily um, cater to Black people within the healthcare system, um, I think they are also looking at, okay, how can we shift things? How can we make things better um, for our Black patients? And that's not to single anyone out, but these are the patients that need the most help right now. Um, because there's such a huge gap um, in mortality, in resources, in availability, um, that I think not just the Black Lives Matter movement, but healthcare as well is moving in that direction of bettering um, the healthcare system and bettering um, the just everyday life for uh, Black individuals. You bring up a lot of good points, Ali. You're doing a lot of great work. We really appreciate the time you spent on us. So tell us, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about how they can reach you and how they can get involved with some of the amazing work that you're doing. Yeah, no, they can reach me on Instagram at Ali, A-L-L-I-E, Cakes, C-A-K-E-S underscore. Um, I'm looking for a new handle, so all suggestions are welcome. Um, or through my email, uh, it's my last name, Thunderberg, F is in Frank, U-N-D-E-R-B-U-R-K, Allie, A-L-L-I-E, at gmail.com. Um, and then, of course, I'll, I'll give you all of that information. So if you need to provide a link, you can. But those are the best two ways to get in contact with me. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of Dextrocardia. If you have any questions or suggestions for us, we can be reached at dextrocardia.podcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to uh, sending out another episode next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Mal. 